0: We are reading in Matthew 16, verses 13 to 28 this morning. Let me read this to us. This is out of the New Living Translation. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, You're blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Then he sternly warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. And from then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests and teachers of the religious law. He would be killed. But on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. You're a dangerous trap to me. You're seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. And I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for what your word does in us, Lord. How it separates out our agenda from your agenda, our thoughts from your thoughts, our ways from your ways. Holy Spirit, who breathed this word, I pray that you would come now and do this work in us. I pray that the word would do its work in our hearts. I pray that you would do your work in our hearts, Lord, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So the boys are still up north in Caesarea Philippi. Here's where Caesarea Philippi is. Now, they've been down here in Galilee and Capernaum, all around the Sea of Galilee. And in fact, Jesus is from Nazareth. And this is important. It's an important part of the story right now because it adds some layer and texture to the drama of what Jesus is about to unfold and why Peter reacts and responds the way he does. And the reason is because there is a north-south division in the Holy Land. Now when we hear of the Holy Land, first century Palestine, we think of it as one thing, that there's generally a Holy Land and they're all the same people and they all think and act and culturally are all the same, this is not true. It's not even remotely true. In fact, the north is very different from the south. The northern kingdoms actually fell first. If you read in the Old Testament, they fell to Assyria. They went first. And then the southern kingdoms, Judea and Jerusalem, fell second and went second. And the northern kingdoms assimilated more into Assyria. So when they returned, they returned culturally not as Jewish as the southern kingdoms. Now, they weren't just separated by sort of their level of orthodoxy. Orthodoxy came primarily or right thinking and teaching about what it meant to be a Jew at that time, came from Jerusalem, which is down here in the south, right? Just a little north of Bethlehem where Jesus was born from or born. And so right orthodoxy came from down here, right teaching, right thinking. This was the big city. This was the country, very agrarian up here, lots of agriculture, lots of fishing. So they had a little bit more money, but they were the country bumpkins. It's almost the opposite of the way people think about things in the United States where the North is more sophisticated and the South, well, we're the South, right? And so that is the way they thought about it there. In fact, they spoke a different dialect. Their accent on their Aramaic was so funny that they were literally the butt of jokes in Jerusalem the way they spoke. So you have to understand these are two radically different places and Jesus has spent all of his time up north. In fact, he's enormously popular. This is the pinnacle of his popularity. Right, If this were today, he would be filling stadiums. He would be, have, be a New York Times best-selling author. He'd have millions of followers on social media. Right, It is at the pinnacle of this time. In fact, this is the reason why they went up here to the north where nobody is. In fact, Capernaum is probably the only remotely orthodox and conservative city in the north. The rest of them are very pagan. In Caesarea Philippi, where they are, there's a gigantic temple to the god Pan, they had massive Greek influence up there in their Judaism. That's what the Hellenizers are. So think, remember Helen of Troy, that whole sort of Greek story, the Hellenistic sort of thinking is Greek thinking, had infiltrated the Jewishness of up north. And so Jesus had to get away from this sort of Sea of Galilee region where he was so popular, and he and the boys have been up here, and they've been having a retreat. And he's telling them right now, hey, guys, this retreat, he's about to say, our story is shifting. We've been up north where we're really popular. We're about to head down south. And you need to understand what the dynamics are between north and south so you understand and give Peter a little bit of grace for his response that he's going to have to Jesus this morning. And so Jesus is pressing in, right? They're having a little bit of time now. What Jesus is doing, he's not teaching the multitudes. He's with his disciples. In fact, from this point forward in the story, he will be primarily with his disciples, pouring into them because he knows what is to come, and he knows the weight that's going to sit on their shoulders. So he's saying, who does everybody say I am? When you guys are out in the marketplace talk, and basically people are believing that he's a prophet. He's either John the Baptist, come back again, he's, he's Elijah, and the spirit of Elijah, and the spirit of Jeremiah, who was a prophet of doom. Jesus keeps saying he's going to tear down the temple and could rebuild it in three days. This is sort of Jeremiah-ish language. So people are thinking at this point, maybe he's just a prophet. But Jesus wants to understand, are you guys getting it? Are you guys starting to understand how much revelation has my Father given to you about who I am? And that's when Jesus presses in. And Peter, at this point, we've seen a few times now in episodes where Peter has started to become the spokesperson for all of the disciples. So they've probably been conferring among themselves as they're out and about or as they're sleeping or eating or whatever. And he's saying, hey, we actually think you're the Messiah. We believe that you are the son of the living God. And Messiah was a very loaded term in that times. We've talked about this a bunch. It, literally, the term Messiah means king of the Jews. The Jews had a king at that time. They had Herod at that time. In fact, if you would have asked who was Messiah to just an average person, some of them might have said, oh, who's our king right now? Well, Herod's our king. And they would have said, no, 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 the Messiah. Oh, well, yeah, we're all sort of waiting on this new David to come. But we don't know. There have been some that have risen up. They've all gotten squashed by the Romans. We don't know if any of this is going to happen ever again. The last one that happened was in Emmaus. It was Judas Maccabeus, and it, it was a mess. And so we don't know if any of those are coming again. But we got this Herod and whatever, you know, it's, it's whatever. We don't know. But these guys were starting to understand that he was the Messiah. And again, they had a picture in their mind, and the picture was David. The picture was a throne. The picture was a military leader. The picture was no more Romans. And that's what their understanding of it was. And so Jesus actually... Praises Peter here. He says, you're blessed, Simon, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. And the Greek word there is a compound word to be remove the covers. There's something that has been covered. There's something that has been in darkness. There's something that has been hidden. And what has happened is my father's turned on the light. My father's pulled back and done the big reveal for you. So you can see and understand who I am, that not only am I this Messiah that's coming, but I am actually the son of living God. You understand that this God is alive, that he's the one that's giving me the power to do all the miracles that I'm doing. You're starting to get and understand this. And he's praising him. He's saying, not only did this, was this revealed to you, but this wasn't flesh and blood. You didn't figure this out in your own skin or your own flesh. And the Greek word there, those Greek words, flesh and blood show up a lot in the Bible. There's actually two words for our our bodies that get used in Greek. One is sarx, and it gets translated as flesh. And it's literally the meat on your bones would be your flesh. But it is also, in the New Testament sense, the corrupted flesh. It is your corrupted nature. It's not always used negatively, but mostly when it's used theologically or doctrinally, it is a negative thing. And he is saying the corrupted nature inside of you did not get this. Paul goes on to talk about it in Corinthians. He says, now I say this, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God because it is perishable. Because it has been corrupted. It was corrupted since since Adam and Eve, and it is still corrupted today. That is not what will inherit the kingdom of God. He also goes on to say that our struggle is not or we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Our battle actually isn't with this flesh. The goal of this flesh is for it to be put to death. You're not supposed to wrestle with it. You're not supposed to try and correct it. You're not supposed to put it through a 12-step program or try and improve it or self-help it into a good place. It is meant to die. It's meant to die every day, as Jesus is going to tell us here in a minute. That's not who we wrestle against. Our wrestle, our fight, our struggle is against these unseen forces here that are influencing us. That is who Paul tells us. And Paul also had his own time of revelation. He was telling in the Galatians when he was telling them, Look, when God set me apart through his grace, he revealed his son to me. He literally blinded me by the light, knocked me off of the horse, blinded me. And whenever I came back to my senses, I didn't go to men to get Jesus revealed to me. Jesus was revealed to me by the Holy Spirit and by the Father. He's saying, I didn't immediately consult with flesh and blood. I didn't even go to Jerusalem to see the other apostles. I actually went out into the wilderness. So Paul himself has even had this sort of revelation, this sort of time when the covers got pulled back. So he had a full understanding. And he was the one who began to understand that this wasn't only for the Jews. It was first for the Jews, but then for the Gentiles. So Jesus is saying that This this revelation that you've gotten, Peter, this revelation from my father, this uncovering that has happened. This is such a profound thing that's happened to you, Simon. I'm going to change your name. And in fact, I'm going to change your name to this Greek or Aramaic word that means rock to the name Petros. We're going to call you Peter. And everyone would have looked at him and said, Peter, because no one was named Peter at that time. We have Peters all over the place. We probably have Peters in here. You have Peters in your family. There are lots of people named Peter today. No one was named Peter at this time. Jesus is laying a name upon Simon here that no one had ever had. Jesus is emphasizing this revelation that he is having. And he's saying, not only this, but this revelation that you're having, this is going to be the foundation of my church. And the Greek word there for church is ekklesia. Don't think about a building. Don't think about an organization. Don't think about a denomination. Think about a community. See, before what made the Jewish community was their blood and their lineage and their law and their customs and their heritage. And what he is saying is, I'm actually making my own brand new. It's going to be an international community of people. And the foundation of it is going to be this revelation of who I am. And I think the greatest miracle and evidence on earth today is the fact that we're sitting here 2,000 years later. And many of us have had this same revelation of who Jesus is. We were just in Ethiopia worshiping with people who had had the same revelation of who Jesus is. If you've traveled internationally around the world, there are bodies of believers, either in public or in private, who have had a revelation of who Jesus is for 2,000 years. This hasn't stopped. That is a miracle. And this is what he's saying. I know these verses get taught lots of different ways. Right, If you grew up in a Catholic church, you would have been taught that the rock literally was Peter. He would establish a church in Rome that would still be there. And this is true. But I believe what Jesus is saying here, in addition to that Peter is going to be a leader, he is saying that this revelation of who I am is foundational to the faith. And Peter would actually echo this later in his own letters when he would say, you are a royal priesthood and a holy nation. Jesus has made a new Community based on this revelation, understanding, and belief of who He is, and Jesus isn't just saying that; He's saying the gates of hell won't conquer it. Now, this whole next section right here, I grew up in a in a more um, in a tradition that taught a lot about spiritual warfare, and this was a big spiritual warfare passage. But I will tell you from studying this out. It's fine if you want to use it for spiritual warfare. I'm not poo-pooing on your spiritual warfare interpretation of this, but I want you to understand what Jesus is saying here. The gates of hell was an idiom in the old, uh, in the first century Palestine for death. He's saying this isn't going to die. It's not going to die. The gates of Hades, death will not ever swallow this up. He is making a prophetic. Proclamation at this point to say this revelation is going to continue to happen and it will be the basis and foundation of my community of people and it will never, ever get squashed. I don't care how corrupt its leaders become. I don't care how oppressive governments are on it. I don't care what happens to these people. I'm telling you now and for all time, my people are going to walk on this earth. This is what Jesus is saying. And then he's turning to Peter and he's saying, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is very mysterious to us because we don't understand kings and kingdoms. And a lot of times we get taught this whole verse here is about binding things in heaven and it'll be bound and loosing and it'll be loosed. And again, it's a spiritual warfare thing. Yes, we have spiritual authority on earth. What Jesus is saying is he is saying, Peter, you're going to be a steward of this new kingdom. Because that's who got the keys in a kingdom. It wasn't about opening a door to let people in and out. This passage is how St. Peter ends up at the pearly gates, right? With the key to let people in and out. That's not a steward, that's a porter. And a porter has one key, and it's the key to that door to let people in and out. What he's saying to Peter is, You are going to be a steward of my household, and whatever you permit. On earth will be the things the way the Greek is written there, it will say, will have already been permitted in heaven. You're going to listen to what I'm saying because I'm going to establish a new kingdom here on earth. It is going to have new rules, Peter. Those kosher food laws, Peter is going to find out, have been wiped away. And he is saying, I'm doing something entirely new, and I'm giving you keys to be a steward. And a steward would have the keys to unlock all of the storehouses. The resources that you're going to need, Peter, the understanding, the teaching, the financial, the power, the things that you're going to need to make my people and to lead my people, I'm giving it to you. You don't have to worry about this. You're thinking about this king on a throne, and military, and taxes, and resources, all of these ways, and I'm telling you that it is a spiritual thing that I'm doing, Peter, and you will never be without, because my storehouses are never empty, and you will have the keys to open them, and I will show you what to open, and it will already have been there on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is continuing that teaching here. Does that make sense? And now you are stewards of this, and he has given you keys and has entrusted you to go and be able to unlock storehouses to be able to feed and clothe and visit and set people free. That's why he's given you these spiritual blessings, and he's going to teach us over and over again in parables from this point forward about what it means to be a steward parable of talents. He's going to talk about sheep and goats. He's going to keep bringing this up. This is Jesus explaining what does it look like for my kingdom to practically be here on earth. And then he sternly warned them not to tell anyone that he was Messiah. And this is because... Look, you boys don't understand. You don't even have the first clue about what it means for what kind of Messiah I'm going to be. Your thoughts about it are jacked up. Do you know what would happen if you told this crazy mob that follows me everywhere that I'm the Messiah? They'd be building me a throne. They'd be amassing me an army. That is not what I want. You keep your mouths shut. And, in fact, Peter is going to evidence why right then. Because Jesus goes on to say, I'm not the kind of Messiah you're thinking about. From this point forward, He is investing in them and He is doing what good leaders do, which is tell their people the truth. And He is saying, We're headed south, boys. And He could probably read from the looks on their faces, Oh my gosh. The guys from the south that have come up, you've argued and fought with them the whole time. Every time the mob's been almost incited to stone you, it's been these guys from the south here questioning you about things. And you want to go down there? You want to go to Jerusalem just when things are good up here up north? We could set your kingdom up up here. Why do we want to go down south? And then he's saying, the priests aren't going to like me. The scribes aren't going to like me. The leading people aren't going to like me. In fact, I'm going to be indicted, and I'm going to be killed. And at that moment, they couldn't hear anything because he says right after that, I'm going to be resurrected. But all Peter hears is, we're going to the south, and I'm going to be killed. And Peter grabs him, pulls him over to the side, and he's like, Jesus... Like, I don't know where you got these crazy ideas of what a Messiah is, but a Messiah is a king. And a king around here has a throne and an army and taxes and power. I don't know about this death and handing over and all of this thing. And Jesus... Tired of being rebuked, literally that Greek word that that says Peter did is the same word when Jesus rebuked the winds and rebuked demons. So Peter's going off on Jesus. And Jesus turns and understands where this is coming from. And Peter's had his second revelation in a short period of time. And this revelation isn't from above, it's from below. And Jesus says the same thing he says in Matthew 4. He says, get behind me, Satan. Peter, this is not... From above, this is from below. You're thinking about this with your corrupted flesh. You're thinking like a man. And what this whole teaching does for us right here, what this whole story does, is teach us that we have revelation that can come into our realm from two realms outside of it. If you were here at the time that I talked about, we are not a closed system. We're not a shoebox that's just like a universe with a shoebox that nothing gets in. The Holy Spirit and Jesus and the Father pierce into this realm. There are times, and Peter's just had that. He's had a revelation from above. It pierced into the realm where Peter lived in the world and his flesh. He got a revelation. He got a second revelation from below. These spiritual forces, this enemy working against him. What is it right here that allows this to activate in our lives? I think there's a whole host of things. Two things I wanted to point out today because I think we're going to see them show up a lot in this teaching as we go forward. One is faith and the other is fear. I think faith and fear are opposites. Oftentimes we think of faith and doubt as opposites. I don't think faith and doubt are opposites. In the same way... That fear and courage live very closely together. If you're not afraid, you don't need courage. If there is not a reason to doubt, you do not need faith. That's called certainty. I am certain gravity exists and will always exist as far as long as I am on earth. It is why I do not leap off of high places. That is not faith. That is certainty. I don't care what apologist you line up and what evidences you line up, you are going to have a gap that you cannot close and cannot be certain on. I don't care if you die and come back to life. You're still going to have a gap. And I don't know why the Lord covers things. I don't know why things were hidden. I don't know why he needs to reveal. I don't know why he set up the universe that way, but he did. And it requires faith. And Peter had enormous faith. He had just seen Jesus and had connected the dots and was making that declaration. But when Jesus explained the kind of Messiah that he was going to be, fear gripped him. Not doubt, fear. Death. If my leader is put to death, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for me? This isn't just like uh, power and position slipping away. This is my entire life slipping away. And the good news is for us is that God has not given us a spirit of fear, it says in 2 Timothy, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And we will see these responses in the parables, and we will see these responses in teaching, and we will see these responses in the disciples over and over and over and over again. We see doubt once in Thomas, but Thomas got got to see that. We don't get to see that. We don't get to stick our finger in the side of Jesus And it tells us in Hebrews that that's the way God wants it. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. He set the whole thing up to have faith. This life is the only time when we will be able to exercise and please God with our faith. When you've seen him, it won't take faith to believe. And so if you have doubt, don't let that make you be afraid. Because if there's not a gap of doubt, there is no need for faith. Faith and doubt are not opposites. They live next door to each other, and it's OK. You do not need to make that, let that make you afraid. The fear is the thing that is going to keep you from stepping out. Fear kept 12 11 disciples in a boat, and courage and faith in Jesus made Peter get out of the boat. Right? Faith is faith because it has action to it, and it is fear that stops us from doing things in life. Jesus says this where he says, Hey, guys, um, not only am I going to die, but you're going to need to take up a cross. And history tells us, tradition tells us, that three of the disciples were actually crucified. Eleven of the twelve actually died for their faith. One died for his lack of faith, I guess. Judas hung himself. Ten of the disciples were martyred, and only John, tradition tells us, lived a long life. Couldn't be. Put in a pot of boiling oil, wouldn't die, and they dumped him on Patmos, which is where he had the revelation, lived as an old man. This was not a metaphor for them about how challenging it was going to be to overcome that strong sin in their life. This is Jesus looking at a group of guys and saying, okay, if you want to follow me This is where I'm headed, and this is what it's going to mean for you. But if you back out now, here's what you need to understand. If you think that you want to go for the power play, and you want to try and accumulate in this life, a day is coming when your life will be judged, and no amount of money is going to help you buy your way out of that judgment. Nothing you will accumulate in this life is going to be enough. When I'm dividing sheep and goats Here in Matthew 25, when I tell you about sheep and goats, there will not be a magic wand you can buy to turn your goat self into a sheep. There will not be sheep suits for sale at the judgment day. There is nothing that you will have accumulated in that point. Your life will be divided. And so if you will give up what you want at this point, boys, and you will follow me, what you need to know is I'm the judge. The son of man, the one that that whenever I say that, you're thinking back to Daniel 7, yeah, that's me. Not only am I the Messiah and the son of the living God, I'm the judge that's coming. And I'm going to judge all the deeds. And so what you want to make sure is you understand how my scales work and how my yardstick works. And boys, right now, I'm telling you, you just need to follow me. And then he has this cryptic saying about some standing here right now will not die before they see the Son of Man. He's about to transfigure himself. He is about to reveal himself in all of his glory to three of them. Eleven of them, will at minus Judas who hung himself after the crucifixion, will actually see him resurrected. Many of them will see the judgment that comes on Israel in that time in AD 70 when the, when the temple was actually destroyed as he prophesied. He's saying, guys, difficult times are coming, and now's the time to follow. So what does this mean for us, right? Here at the end of 2018, looking into 2019, how do we take this talk, this teach that we've probably heard? You know, if you've been following the Lord for any time, you've heard a dozen sermons on this particular one about Peter and to the the, be behind me. What, what do we do with that in this time? I think the first thing is recognize the season of life that we're in. These guys were in a season of life that was changing. There was a shift happening, and Jesus understood that, and Jesus was preparing them for this. And maybe Jesus is doing that for you. Maybe you're in a shift in seasons and the things that he's doing, you don't fully understand. I would encourage you to press into him and say, Lord, what are you doing now? Is there there a season shift in my life right now? What are you preparing me for next? He is good and faithful to always prepare us for the next thing we're walking into. The other thing that we have to do is we have to understand how he measures success. It is not our measure of success ultimately that will matter. I had two men that were really influential in my life growing up, and they would say to me, Sean, we measured success as the next step of obedience. Whatever Jesus had for us to do next, if we took that step, if we exercised the faith, if we overcame our doubt, if we eradicated the fear, and we took that next step of what we thought was obedience to Jesus, that was success for us, no matter what the external circumstances looked like. We have to understand what his measuring stick is, and then we have to know whose agenda we're working on. I think there's two agendas Lined out in this. There's probably a third, meaning the, the flesh and your body, etc. Right, But I want to talk about two agendas. The first one is the agenda from above. And Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, stood up and read from Isaiah and told us what his agenda was. He was going to preach the good news to the poor. He was going to set free the captives. And he was going to release the oppressed. That is what his work was. He's going to tell us soon in Matthew 25 that when the sheep and the goats get divided at the very end, it will be because the sheep worked on his agenda. They saw hungry people and fed them. They saw thirsty people and they gave them drink. They saw the stranger and they welcomed them in. They saw the naked and clothed. They saw the sick and took care of them and they went and visited the prisoner. He's not being metaphoric there. And so as you reflect back on your 2018 and as you look forward to your 2019, I would encourage, in the way the Lord has been encouraging me and really just taking me and pointing me at my life in 2018 and making me look ahead, this is the agenda of God. If you're wondering, God, what is your will for my life? Feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, clothe this, bring in the stranger, clothe the, go visit the sick, pray for them care for them. Go visit the prisoner. That's his agenda. But there is another agenda that was operating in this story, and it was the enemy's agenda from below. Jesus said that the enemy came to kill and steal and destroy, and he does that in literal ways. He does that in metaphoric ways. He does that in our lives, I think primarily through two or three ways. One is distracting us, we are so distracted. I am so distracted so many times. I'm just distracted. And sometimes it's not even that I actually uh, realize that I'm distracted. I'm just distracted. I'm in my head. I'm living somewhere else. I'm not present. I'm not in the moment. I'm not looking around. I'm not saying, Holy Spirit, what do you want me doing here at this moment? Or other times, the place where I need to go or the thing that's coming up or the situation that I find myself in is so painful, I don't want to go there. I just want to escape. And modern man has invented so many ways for us to escape. And I'm not picking on any of them. None of them are bad. You know your escapes. You know where you go. Some of them might be fine. Maybe you knit. Maybe knitting is your escape. Life gets hard and you go knitting. Maybe you exercise a lot. Maybe your escapes are actually socially beneficial and acceptable. A lot of them are. I'm looking at all of you. You guys look like you're fairly put together. Probably most of your escape mechanisms, you've sort of figured out, oh, if I just work harder, I don't have to think about the pain and it benefits me. Right? Escape takes lots of guises. And the last one is, is I think the enemy pushes us into this space of competition in ways that are entirely unhealthy. See, I think there's two ways, there's two ways that these competing king, that these kingdoms deal with competition. And they're very, very different. Paul says, I ran the race like a runner who wanted to win. He wanted to compete. But it was a a competing of comparison. It wasn't a, hey, how's Tim doing? Am I out doing Tim? I don't know. I don't know. He seems, he's in way better shape than me. So I won't compare myself to him there, but he's, you know, how's he doing? How's this doing? How's, what's his car? He drives that big truck. I drive that little car. Okay, I won't, right? We compare, we compete in business, right? We're competing all the time. We live in an area where competition gets talked about all the time. And there is a competition that is healthy that pushes us and there is a competition that wants to tear down. And if you've been around here and heard me speak before you have probably heard me pick on Darwin. I pick on Darwin all the time and it's not about evolution. Darwin can say whatever he wants about the origins of man. It is the fact that the survival of the fittest has woven its way into every area and aspect of our culture so that we say if it won, it was right. That is literally what that means. If it wins, it's right. And we practice that in business and economics and politics and all of these areas, all of most of the struggles that you see between races and gender and classes are struggles over power as opposed to one another lying down and preferring one another. And the way Jesus does competition, and this is what the disciples didn't like, is he said, if you want to be my follower, you have to give up your own way. Your ideas of Messiah are out, mine are in. In fact, they're not even mine, they're the Father's. And in fact, I'm going to try to give them away in the garden. He's not going to let me. He's going to tell me this is the only way to do it, and I'm going to follow through with it. Jesus's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. It is better for you to lose on earth and keep your soul than to gain everything on earth and not have anything to pay with in the next age. But there's also a way to keep compete here. If you're just saying, Sean, that's great, but what I really want is I want my company to break 10 million or 100 million or a billion dollars. I need a million dollars in my bank account. I need more uh, uh, notoriety. I need to be more famous. I need to be more powerful. I need to be better at whatever area. Satan was very clear how to get this. He told Jesus when he showed him everything, all the riches and the power on earth. He said, all you have to do is bow down to me. You can bow overtly or you can bow subtly and metaphorically by continuing to escape, by not working on the Lord's agenda, by continuing to follow your own thing, even though it looks good and makes you successful and amasses things to you. Even if you're benevolent with all of it, the Lord is not looking on the outside. He's looking all the way in and through to our hearts. So Lord has been hammering me with three questions here I'll leave us with. The first one is, as I look forward into 2018, he's saying, are you willing to follow me? Are you going to follow me? I have this step and this step and this step for you to take. Are you going to take it? And as I look backwards over 2018, the thing that Jesus is not asking me is, who do you say that I am? Because we get to cheat on that one. We have an entire Bible. We can just parrot Peter on that one. I think what the Holy Spirit has been saying is he's saying, Sean, I'm looking at your life, and here's what your life says to me about who you think Jesus is. I don't want your words, Sean. I want your actions. I want your deeds. Your words are easy, you can say this, but when I look at where you invest your time, where you invest your talents, where you invest your resources, where you put things, what does it say about who you think Jesus is? And the third question is, is what revelation am I living into The Bible says we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That means he is continually speaking to us. And the word for Jesus to the boys right then, as boys were headed south, that was the revelation, and the revelation that the Messiah must die at the hands of these leaders. That was the revelation they were living into. What revelation are you living into? What scripture is overarching your life in this season What word that the Lord has given you? What revelation that the Holy Spirit has given you in your heart are you living into? And if you're like, I don't have one, I would tell you, get one. This is the way to ensure that we stay on agenda with God, that we keep that relationship sort of fresh and alive and vital in our lives. So we have something very practical that's about to happen. We're at a 21-day fast. Anybody here ever fasted for 21 days? There's a hand, there's a hand, there's a hand. All right. For everyone else, do not do a 21-day water fast if you've never fasted before in your life. That is a great way to have the worst caffeine headache in your life, low blood sugar like you've never had before, to be the most obnoxious human that you've ever been, and for your family to literally make you sleep outside. Like, it will be very, very hard for your first fasting experience to be 21 days on water. Could you do it? Yes. Um, It would take supernatural (laughs) strength for you to do it. Um, If you feel like the Lord is calling you to join in this fast, I would encourage you to pray about some food fasting. Right, There are more fast food restaurants than there are churches in America, and they are growing at a faster rate. Food is clearly the God in America. And if you want to understand your relationship with food, take your list of your favorites and stop eating them for 21 days, and you will understand very, very quickly your relationship with food. So I would encourage you to do something with fasting related to food. Now, if you have small children, you can't make your small children fast, so that means you're still going to do food prep. One of the things I want to explain to you is fasting is about two things, what you stop doing and what you do in place of that. So when fasting was happening for most of human history, it was at a time when food, gathering, and preparation was the bulk of what your life consisted of. Finding the water, finding the heat source, putting it together, making the meal. You had no food refrigeration. It was going away. It was the time in your life. So if all you did was fast, was drink, or eat something simple, you had an enormous amount of time in your life to seek the Lord in prayer and to serve others. We don't live in that day and age. It's very easy on every day but Sunday to drive through Chick-fil-A and have dinner for everybody for 35 bucks in about 10 minutes, right? However, we still probably prep some food, and I'm going to guess that there is one of the people in your household that is the primary food prepper of the family, and if the kids aren't fasting, they're going to still be prepping, and they're not going to have time. So wives, serve your husbands, and husbands, serve your wives, Work this out practically so that one of you can have a meal off from food prep to seek the Lord or to serve, right? Be, be a partnership in that way. This, can I be a little pastoral with you guys on this one? Like be practical about this. The second thing that I would say is there are probably things that are time sucks that eat up an enormous amount of time in your day. If you have some of those, like the thing you just thought of the moment I said it is probably the number one, one in your life consider giving that one up in addition to so that you can free up some time in your life. Okay? And then the last thing is sharing the food prepping load is a couple. I already said that one. All right. That was just some practical stuff on fasting. If the whole thing sounds very daunting, there's lots you can read about it online. You're not going to die fasting 21 days. I fasted 40 days multiple times and I'm still here. So, like, you're, you're going to be okay. And so it, it is a good thing to do. You're not doing it to impress me, your spouse, your best friend, and you're certainly not doing it to impress God. He is not impressed with these actions. What you're doing is you're doing it as an act of obedience, because Jesus said, when we fast, it is a practice that we've lost. And you're choosing voluntary weakness to remind yourself how weak that corruptible flesh is. And if you want to know just how corruptible it is, again make a list of all your favorite things to eat and don't eat them for 21 days. It will tell you, it will point out to you every day how corruptible and fallen and weak that flesh is. But the benefits to it are incredible. So if you have any questions about that, come find me, find one of the um, elders here, find Shelly. Tim asked me to say people shouldn't give up uh, coffee during fasting, or at least if you are, just just go to their shop to buy the coffee. Um, No, I'm kidding. Why don't you stand and I'll pray for us. Lord, that was a lot. But uh, if there's one thing, Lord, that that, that I know that you have done with me as I've studied on this particular teaching is you have said, Sean, whose agenda are you working on? Holy Spirit, I want you to search my heart and I want you to point out to me places where I'm not working on your agenda. Point out where I'm working on my agenda. Point out where I'm working on the agenda of others, Lord, that you don't want me aligned with. And certainly, Lord, point out where I have allowed the enemy to have a place, to put tasks on my to-do list, to put fear in my heart, to put whatever it is, Lord, in my heart that causes me to work on any agenda other than yours, Lord. And yes, Lord, there are a lot of things that we do in life that are just practical things. There is a lot of uh, eating and sleeping and working and living that goes on, Lord. And Lord, let us do that in a way that glorifies and honors you in 2019. Let Let us put to bed all of the things of 2018. Let us say thank you to you for the provisions. Let us say thank you to you for the blessings. Let us give you glory and honor for anything that we did that brought glory and praise to you or that was to as benefit to someone else. And Lord, everything else that was either neutral or was on our own agenda or on the enemy's agenda, we thank you that it is under the blood. And we renew right now, Lord, this commitment to you to live on your agenda. Holy Spirit, you come into our hearts, not just to make us new, but to empower us to live in this new way, to empower us to live and be about our Father's business, to be on his agenda, to see the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Help us. Speak to us about this fast very particularly. Give us practical ways to enter into this. And Lord, for everyone that even makes the tiniest effort to do this, I pray and I thank you that you will rush in to meet them with benefits, with your presence, with your revelation, with your strength, in ways that we could not imagine. You're so abundant, Lord. We take one step towards you, and you've run a thousand towards us. You will always overwhelm us with your goodness and love towards us. And let that be the thing that is over all of us in 2019. In Jesus' name, amen.